Let's pray. Father, in these moments, please give us a glimpse of who you are that we may see Jesus. And Father, please give us a love for our city as Paul loved this city. Show us that you exist and that in you we find everything that we are seeking. And that we do not pray to an unknown God, but we pray to a known God who has revealed himself in creation, providence, conscience, and Jesus through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Does God exist? Do unicorns exist? Does Bigfoot exist? How do we know what is? This is a really important question, right? If God does not exist, then Christianity does not exist. The writer of Hebrews makes this case. He says, if there is no God, then there is no Christianity. And I would submit to you that if there is no God, then we are severely lacking in meaning, identity, and purpose. But if God does exist, the God of the Bible, the story of the Bible, then we have incredible meaning, unmatched identity, and a hope for eternity that is utterly amazing. Does God exist is an important question. It's one that philosophers have with, for ages have wrestled with and people today continue to think about. This past week, I was in the locker room of our gym and a man walked in and noticed uh, a book that I had with me, Reason for God. So he looked at me and he asked, he said, Do you believe in God? And I said, I do. I said, Do you believe in God? He said, I'm thinking about it. I said, well, put some clothes on and we can talk about it later. (laughs) It's a little awkward. It's an important question that no matter where we are, if we take time to consider, it's one we ought to ask. Does God exist? And Paul addresses that question with several different arguments here in Acts chapter 17. But before we get to the words of Paul... I really want us to think about the heart of Paul. It's really important for you to see the man behind the message. So let's first look at the heart of Paul. In verse 16, Paul was where? Paul was in Athens. Now Athens at this time had been conquered by the Roman Empire, but it was still a very impressive city. It was one of the leading cities culturally, intellectually. It had beautiful architecture It had great thinkers. Athens was the home of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. It was an impressive city by all human accounts. What would you have thought as you looked at this city? If you were an artist, perhaps you would be captivated by the beauty of the city. If you were a politician, you might think, oh, this is where Pericles was. If you were a business person, you might look out at the thriving harbor and think about how impressive it was economically. Or if you are a philosopher, you might have looked at this city and said, here is the home of Plato. You would have easily been impressed. But Paul looks at the city 
and what is his thought. Paul looks at this impressive city and in verse 16 we are told that he was provoked within. Now that word is really interesting. It's the same word that's used of God when he looks at idolatry in the Old Testament. It's the way that God feels towards a people who have rebelled. We get our word seizure from this Greek root. It's a deep, it's an emotional, it's an intense feeling that Paul has for the city of Athens. Because on the one hand, he's indignant because he worships a holy God and he sees a people living in rebellion. But on the other hand, he's compassionate because he sees a people in slavery and he responds with gentleness. This feeling is not hard for us to imagine. Think of any of you, if you have a son or a daughter and you see them engaging in self-destructive behavior, how do you feel towards them? If your son or daughter is an addict and they're destroying their children, how do you feel You might even respond in anger. But that anger is rooted in what? It's rooted in love. And that's the way that Paul felt towards the Athenians. He was indignant, but he was also compassionate. Now we've been here for about two years. And we overlap with the previous senior pastor a little bit, John and Cynthia Hutchinson. You may know them. They had us over for dinner one night, made us an incredible meal on their green egg. And our conversation went late into the evening. And I asked John, I said, I'm moving here from Birmingham. I'm moving to an impressive city, to an impressive congregation. What do I need to know? And he says, you need to realize where you are. It is an amazing city, but you cannot be intimidated by it or enamored by it. I think that's what Paul is doing here. Because if I would have looked at Athens, I would have said, it's too pagan. It's too materialistic. It's too far gone for the gospel to do anything in this city. And Paul says, bring it on. And Paul goes into the city. And Paul goes courageously into the marketplace. And he speaks respectfully. And as James pointed out last week, our tendency is towards cowardice or to be obnoxious that will be immuse or will be hedgehogs or will be rhinos. And we see Paul embody this lion and lamb likeness as he goes courageously into a city, yet at the same time, he makes himself vulnerable. You know, one of the evidence for the existence of God is actually the testimony of Paul. Here is a man who was formerly Saul, a terrorist who was killing people, who was persecuting followers of Jesus, and now he's ready to go into a city and to die for this uh, Jesus and to love a city that he may not have loved previously. One of the evidences for the existence of God is the transformed life of Paul. That's who is speaking to the people of Athens. Now, what did he say? As Paul went there, notice he was respectful. He perceives that in every way you are religious. 
You see, they may seem on the surface to be unbelieving, but they are very religious. As Paul went into the marketplace, it mentions two of those schools of philosophy. It mentions the Epicureans, and he also mentions the Stoics. Now, you may not know any Epicureans, and let me tell you what they believed. They believed that gods were distant and that they were removed. One of the most famous Epicureans wrote this, There's nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death. Good pleasure can be obtained, evil can be endured. They thought history was random, that life had no meaning, so what should you do? Pursue as much pleasure as possible and avoid pain at all costs. Now, who were the Stoics? The Stoics believed that God is in everything, kind of like the idea of the force in Star Wars. They stress self-sufficiency, obedience, civic duties, be a good person. They believed in fate and not pleasure, but duty. This is who Paul encountered in the marketplace. And then they invited him to come to the Areopagus. Now, what is that? It's a hill where a court was, where they would consider all of these different ideas. It was the same place that Socrates had been tried four centuries earlier. Paul was invited to address something like the faculties of Princeton, Harvard, Yale, the University of Tennessee... I'm joking. Princeton should not be on that list. (laughs) Paul shows up with this impressive group of people and he points out that they are extremely religious, that they are full of idolatry, that they have many things that they are putting in the place of God, some really good things like relationships or ideas, or work, but they are making these things into idols. Mark Twain once quipped about the idols in northeastern cities. He says, in Boston they ask, what does he know? In New York they ask, how much does he make? But in Philadelphia they ask, what family is he from? You see, every city has their own particular idols, whether they're education wealth, or family pedigree. What do you think the idols are of our city? What do you think the idol of D.C. is? I wonder if Twain had continued, he would have said, who does he or she know? And then Paul goes further. He says, at the beginning of Paul's speech, he quotes an altar with the inscription, to the unknown God. This is not very different from our society. We have an unknown God. If you look at statistics, 77% of Americans still believe in God. But we have no idea who He is or we just make up ideas about Him. Don't we hear that all the time? I think God is like this. I think God is love. Where do we get these ideas about who God is? Is, But even in Christian circles, I would submit to you that many times we are worshiping an unknown God. This same survey by the Ligonier Ministry um, also showed 
that 71% of Americans believe in the Trinity. But if you look at the other questions, most of them had a heretical, an unorthodox, or an unbiblical view of the Trinity. Or these 77% of Americans that believed in God, 48% strongly agree that God is, a, God is not a perfect being, and he can make a mistake. So we serve an unknown God. We may actually believe that he exists, but we actually don't know him. We have formed a God of imagination as Paul describes him. You see, you can be a person who is extremely religious or extremely spiritual, and you may not know God. So Paul makes an argument. He gives us seven ways that we can know that God exists. There may be more, there may be less. This is the way that I've grouped them together. The first one is this. In verse 24, God created us. It says, The God who made the world and everything in it. Paul may be appealing to a common argument that philosophers have called the cosmological argument. You should be impressed. That's my University of Tennessee education at work right there. The argument that Paul is making is because creation exists, God must exist. Everything must have a first cause. You cannot get something from nothing. And so theologians infer and philosophers infer that that first cause could have been God. Now it's illustrated like if you have a pile of wood, that pile of wood is not going to automatically jump into a house. It requires a cause, a builder, a contractor to put it together. And so Paul is saying one of the evidences, one of the clues, one of the signposts for the existence of God is the existence of creation. Now, the second argument that Paul makes here is in verse 24. He says that God transcends creation. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man. You see, Paul is stating that God cannot be captured or contained in creation. God is not simply a bigger version of you. He exists above, outside, and before creation, but he can enter into the universe. Now, some of you may have been alive in 1961, so you would be familiar with the first Russian to go around the earth. When he returned, he said this, My atheism has been confirmed. I went up in space, and I looked around, and I did not see any God. Well, right after that, C.S. Lewis responded by saying that if there is a God who created everything, God would not relate to us in this way. God would relate to us the way Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Hamlet is never going to find anything out about Shakespeare by going upstairs or backstage. The only way Hamlet is going to know anything about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes information about Shakespeare into the play. God transcends creation, but he has made himself known because he has entered into the universe. We'll come back to that. The third argument that Paul makes is this. God sustains creation. In verse 25 he says, Nor is he served by human needs or human hands 
as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is known as the fine-tuning argument. It means that the universe is so complex, it's such an amazing design that it must have been designed by a great designer or an intelligent being like God. It's like one in a trillion chance that everything would be constant in this universe that life could exist. The illustration that's used is if there's an explosion in a print shop, what are the chances that the ink and the paper and all that would go up into the air would come down and print Hamlet? Stephen Hawking responded, the famous atheist, to this argument saying, well, maybe when the Big Bang happened, there were literally trillions of parallel universes and we just happened to be in the one in which matter coalesces and there's organic life. Now, another philosopher, Alvin Plantinga, responded brilliantly in this way. He says, imagine a group of cowboys playing poker and the dealer deals himself 20 straight hands of four aces. As his companions reach for their six shooters, the poker player, the dealer says, I know it looks suspicious, but what if there is an infinite succession of universes so that for any possible distribution of poker hands, there is one possibility in which this universe is realized? What does it mean if you just happen to be in that poker game? What do they do? They shoot him. Why? Because it's possible, but it's not probable. And Plantinga makes the same argument, that is it possible that there are trillions of universes? It's possible, but it may not be probable, and that requires a leap of faith. Fourth, Paul makes this argument. He says, God is the Father of creation. In verse 26, He says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God is the Father of creation. Like James said last week, Because we are all made in the image of God, we all have dignity and worth and value. You see, Paul may have been making the moral argument that if there is no God, if there is no absolute being, if there is no lawgiver, then there is no law. There is no morality. You see, I would ask you, is there anything in the world that you think ought to be stopped right now? And if you can say that one thing should be stopped, perhaps the murder of innocence. You may believe that, but do you have an argument for that? You see, if you don't have a moral lawgiver, then all morality is just relative. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be an atheist and be a more moral person than me. It just means that you don't have a basis for your morality. Where does this idea of right and wrong come from? You may say it's just part of the natural process that it evolved in human beings over time. But where does this idea of human sacrifice for another individual, the willingness to lay down your life for another person, where does this come from? Because that doesn't aid survival. 
If we look at nature, what do we see? We see the strong eating the weak. But even if we granted that God didn't exist and morality was just a construct that was created from evolution, we still couldn't make an argument that it's binding on all people. It's still relative. You see, hidden in our hearts, we have the law of God and we know right and wrong. And this is evidence of the existence of God. The fifth argument that Paul makes is this, is that God created us for him. In verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. You see, God is not an impersonal force. He's not just found in creation. He is a personal being. And do you know what? Paul says we were created to have a relationship with this God. And like Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. No matter the wealth that you achieve, no matter the fame that you secure, no matter the relationships that you have, ultimately, all of them will not be satisfying. They may satisfy you for a time, but when you get all that you've ever dreamt, all that you've ever hoped, it still leaves you with a vague feeling of emptiness. You know why? Because you and I were created for a relationship with God. And everything that we are looking for in the world, in creation, can only be found in the Creator. Meaning, hope, significance, love, worth, value. Everything that you are looking for is found in God. God created us for Him. The sixth argument that Paul makes is that God created us in His image. Look at verse 29. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This is what Paul means in Romans chapter 1, that like Ecclesiastes says, eternity has been set in the hearts of men. We know that God exists, but we suppress the truth about this. I can illustrate this very easily. It's 4th of July weekend. That means you all ate well. It means you ate a lot of hamburgers. It means you ate a lot of hot dogs, perhaps some homemade ice cream. And you know what that means. It means that none of you got up today and weighed yourself. Why? Nobody weighs himself after a cookout because you know what the scale is going to say and you don't want to look. You suppress the truth, something that you already know. Keller says this, My unwillingness to obey is based on my inability to believe. You may say this, but it could be your inability to believe is based on your unwillingness to obey. Are you suppressing the truth? The seventh and the final argument that Paul makes is this. He says, God is going to judge creation when Jesus returns in verse 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul interacts with their worldviews. He gives them several reasons to believe in the existence of God, but then he comes to the high point of his argument, and he says, yes, but Jesus was raised from the dead. He drops the mic and walks off the stage. You see, here's the point. If Jesus really was and is who he claimed to be, if he really was resurrected from the dead, then God exists. And it doesn't matter if you think that he doesn't exist. It doesn't matter if you don't think he's very fulfilling. It doesn't matter if you can't come up with the reason for human suffering and evil. If Jesus really was who he says he was, if he was really resurrected from the dead, then there is no greater proof that God exists than Jesus. Now, we don't have time to go into the evidences for the historical claims of Jesus, but there are good ones. Wrestle with them. Think about them. Paul is making this argument. He's, he's cut off. He probably doesn't get to finish preaching, but what might he have said? He might have preached about the judgment. He might have reminded them that Jesus has already come one time, and the first time that he came, instead of coming and bringing judgment, he came and he bore judgment. And ca- instead of coming and judging our rebellion and our slavery with the sword, he came and he had the wounds in his hands. Instead of bringing judgment, he bore judgment for us. You see, Paul's heart was just mimicking the gospel heart of Jesus. That on the one hand, Jesus was indignant about rebellion because of the holiness of God that we as humans have, 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 have we've created cosmic treason. But on the other hand, he was compassionate. He came to die, but he was willing to die. You see, when that gets a hold of you, that will transform you. It will change you. It changed Saul. And you know it changed the Roman Empire. This gospel message, this foolishness that was preached to this empire became swept up in Christianity because it was true. Friends, we have great hope, great strength, great courage to know that God exists, that He is on the move, that His message is powerful. And when that gets a hold of us, we will be like Paul. We'll go to the synagogue. We go to the church people. We go to the marketplace. We have a public faith. And we will go to anyone because God is capable of revealing himself to anyone. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us the same heart that Paul had for the people of Athens that we would be driven, that we would be motivated, that we would be compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would know you, that we would know your holiness, that we would be indignant at rebellion, 
But at the same time, we would be compassionate about slavery. Father, do this for the sake of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.